Hey everyone, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry. Before we get started, I just want to thank you for being here. This is our 100th episode. We've grown a lot in size since our early days back when we were only on YouTube. Nowadays, you can join the dark side everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm super happy to have you here and I got a really, really mysterious episode for you. Today we're discussing one of the most puzzling cases I've ever come across, and that says a lot. 38-year-old federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna, who works in Baltimore, Maryland, and lives in Elkridge, Maryland, went on a long drive late at night for unknown reasons and died in the early morning hours. Jonathan's movements that night have been questioned, dissected, they've been analyzed by everyone from local law enforcement to private detectives and all the way up to the FBI. We've got a whole lot to talk about today. This is episode 100, The Case of Jonathan Luna. This story takes place in 2003. It was the beginning of the Iraq War. Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor of California. Stamps were 37 cents. Finding Nemo was released in theaters. American Idol, Bacon, and low-carb diets were all everyone was talking about, including me. Apple launched iTunes. Michael Jordan took a well-deserved retirement. And lastly, technology was beginning to ramp up. Cell phones, digital cameras, and other electronics were becoming more accessible to the public. You didn't just have to buy them at Radio Shack anymore. You could get them at Walmart. In the very early morning hours of December 4th, 2003, it's still dark out between 5 o'clock and 5.30 a.m., Two employees of a well drilling company in Denver, Pennsylvania, are starting their day. It's dark and quiet out. They're loading up their gear for their day and drinking coffee when they notice a small red blinking light coming from the creek a short distance away. This creek is only 100 feet from the road in the well drilling business. One of the employees thinks to himself, that light isn't supposed to be there. What the heck is that? So they position one of their company trucks towards the creek and turn on the headlights. They walk towards the red light and see as they get closer, there is a brand new 2003 Honda Accord sitting at the creek. There's a four foot embankment from the ground to the creek and this car is hanging on by a thread on the edge. It's like teetering. Basically the front of the car was dangling over the creek. The back half is on the embankment. The red light they spotted was coming from inside of the car's dashboard. They assume this is probably a drunk driver who went off the road and into the creek and then he fled. This is an extremely rural area with very little traffic. The name of the road this well drilling business and this creek are on is called Dry Tavern Road, if that doesn't tell you just how far out in the middle of nowhere they are. The car has its headlights off, but it's running. I spent a good bit of time trying to figure out what gear the car was in, but I couldn't find that info anywhere. The men look inside the car. Remember, it's still very dark. They don't see anyone, but they spot a decent amount of blood inside. They call the police, but this town's police department is closed and won't open for a few hours. There's not a single officer on duty. There's very little crime in this area, obviously. So two Pennsylvania state troopers arrive and look around. They see inside the car there is blood and dollar bills, tens, twenties, ones, all scattered around. They also find blood on the outside of the vehicle. 
They look around and get down into the creek where they find a deceased mid-30s black man wearing a business suit laying face down in the water with 36 stab wounds. The man's court ID badge shows his name is Jonathan Luna. Jonathan Luna is 38 years old at the time of this story. He was born October 21, 1965. He grew up in the housing projects next to Yankee Stadium in the Bronx in New York. Jonathan was a huge Yankees fan all his life. His dad worked at a restaurant and his mom stayed home to raise Jonathan and his brother. Jonathan wanted to do something huge with his life. He got excellent grades and friends say he was always reading a book. He was known to dress professionally for school. You remember the kids that wore a button-up shirt and a belt and khaki pants every day? That was Jonathan. His close friend from childhood described him as an oddball. There's nothing wrong with being an oddball, by the way. I'm an oddball myself, and I hope you are too. Those who knew Jonathan say he was good-looking, tall, smiled a lot, and caught the attention of a lot of ladies on campus. Many say he resembled Tiger Woods. He received his undergraduate degree in history from Fordham University. He then went to the University of North Carolina School of Law, where he was the president of his class, even though he took one year off to care for his father, who was suffering with cancer. His college roommate was quoted as saying, Jonathan was an honorable and always dignified man. He became a successful lawyer and went to work at the very prestigious Washington, D.C. law firm Arnold and Porter. In 1993, he married an equally successful, beautiful young woman named Angela Hopkins. Together, they had two young boys. His son's names are Justin and Jacob. At the time of this story in 2003, they are five years old and 10 months old. Angela is an obstetrician gynecologist. Today, she is with the University of Maryland St. Joseph's Medical Center. She is well-respected and a popular doctor in Maryland. She is also the author of a pregnancy book called Pregnancy, a Divine Intervention. So she's got a lot going on with her as well. Jonathan worked for the Federal Trade Commission from 1994 to 1997. He then became a prosecutor in New York City. Jonathan and Angela moved to Baltimore, Maryland, and Jonathan landed a very tough position. He's a federal prosecutor. Jonathan has put away some serious criminals. If you break the law and it's on a federal level, you're going to have to face Jonathan. He's not putting away guys with DUIs and petty crimes. His cases involve child pornography, sex trafficking, and murders, and that level of crime. From everything I've read, Jonathan was a pretty badass attorney. He did his job extremely well and was great at cross-examinations and presenting his arguments to the courts. In his personal life, Jonathan was well-liked and had a large group of friends. Friends say he mostly just worked 24-7. Being a federal prosecutor is a round-the-clock job. He's just busy with work all the time. But occasionally, he was able to venture out to baseball games and spend quality days with his family. His wife is very busy as well, being a doctor. Jonathan helped his parents get a new house. He paid for part of it. This says a lot about his character. Helping his aging parents is a notable thing for him to do, and he was never hesitant about getting them anything they needed. According to the Washington Post, Jonathan organized office softball games, he loved the Yankees, he ran marathons, and he loved classical music. Judge William Olstein said of Jonathan, 
I never saw anything that indicated anything but the highest principles. It's 2003, and Jonathan has been with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the last four years. There were some rumors flying around that Jonathan was in jeopardy of losing his job. Some colleagues said that he and his boss didn't get along. This is a new boss, and if you ever have a new boss come waltzing in and want to change things around, and Jonathan wasn't really feeling it. But his new boss says there is no truth to this. He says Jonathan was an excellent attorney and there were zero issues. I know people don't like to speak ill of the dead, so he could just be saying this as a nice thing, or maybe he really is telling the truth. We don't know. Right now, Jonathan is in the middle of a complex, high-profile case he's working on involving two rappers from Baltimore. Dion and Walter were accused of running a large heroin ring out of their recording studio. Both of these men are being held in prison, but are escorted in their shackles from the prison to the courthouse for their trial, however long it lasts. These two are dangerous men who have violent criminal pasts. But again, they're in jail during this time. This is a popular case in the city of Baltimore. There's news teams and journalists there at the courthouse every day waiting to see what happens. On the morning of December 3rd, 2003, Jonathan does something out of character. He arrives at court late, only by a few minutes. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you'll know that judges don't like this at all. It's not a good look. He explained that he was at the emergency room all night with his infant son, who was sick. Judge William Quarles is understanding, but he still issues Jonathan a $25 fine. Now, I don't know if this trip to the hospital with his son was true or if it was something he made up in the moment as an excuse to tell the judge. Maybe he needed to come up with a reason quickly for why he's late. I can't find anything on it. We know that his wife is a doctor and capable of attending to the child, but maybe he needed medication that only he could get at the hospital. As the day goes on, Jonathan and the defense attorneys negotiate a plea deal for these two defendants. This is a really good deal, which included the most serious offenses from the defendants being dropped. I believe this may be a sweetheart deal, but I'm not a lawyer, so I can't say for certain. In the court of law, a sweetheart deal is when one party presents another party with a deal they can't say no to. It's like a one-shot deal to have it go in your favor. The defendants agree to take this plea deal. So Jonathan is going to be up late that night preparing the plea agreement for the next morning. This has to be ready. I've said it before, a prosecutor never sleeps, especially on the federal level that Jonathan was. Negotiations were going on well into the evening, and then Jonathan heads home to his house in Elkridge, Maryland, which is only 14 miles from the courthouse on Lombard Street in Baltimore. He eats dinner with his wife and two young sons. He tells his wife at some point this evening, I have to go back to the office so I can wrap up this plea deal for the morning. He calls the defense attorney and says he will have the plea agreement finished and he would fax it over as soon as he was done. He also called the other defense attorney but didn't get an answer, so he left him a message. Court is at 9.30 a.m. the next morning. They have to have it completed by then. This is a huge case. Media will be at the courthouse tomorrow and there can't be any issues. He at some point goes back home from his office to finish his work. Jonathan gets a call on his cell phone and he tells his wife he's got to go back to the office again. 
This was not unusual for Jonathan to be receiving late night phone calls from other attorneys, judges, plaintiffs. It's not unusual for him to have to come home and then head back to the office. It's part of the job. It happens all the time. As a wife, that second phone call would be setting off alarm bells, though, like you just got home from the office and now you're heading back again. This would be the third time in one day Jonathan has driven to work. Jonathan hangs up and heads back to the courthouse. It's 2003, and cell phones aren't what they are today. There wasn't the internet and GPS and all this cool stuff we have nowadays that's readily accessible. You could make phone calls and play Snake, and that's about it. I don't know why it hasn't been released. Who called Jonathan? Who made this late-night phone call that made Jonathan say, I gotta run? I'm positive they can look at phone records and find out even with 2003 technology, but for whatever reason, we don't know who made that call to him. It has not been released. Now begins the weird stuff. The next six hours are going to be the most mysterious, and I'll warn you now, there are gaps. There are things that we don't know. We try to fill in the blanks using our own imagination, but we don't know exactly what happened that night. Jonathan's car enters the parking garage at the federal courthouse around 11 p.m. He goes inside the building and to his office. We know Jonathan left the courthouse at 11.38 p.m. because his car is spotted on camera leaving the parking garage, so we know he wasn't there for more than about 30 minutes. Whether Jonathan is alone or with someone, we don't know because you can't see in the car. What we do know is that Jonathan left his glasses, which he needs to drive, and his cell phone in his office on his desk. The finalized plea bargain, which is that super important document he said he was going to fax to the other attorney, was never sent. Instead of heading home, he instead gets on 95 and starts heading further up the road and into the night. Jonathan has an easy pass in his car. If you're not from the East Coast side of the U.S., there is a small transponder that you can get for your car and use it to go through toll booths. It just gets scanned and you go on through. Most times you don't even have to stop at the toll. It's like a fast pass. You go online and you add funds to your account and the toll fee is deducted from the balance. I don't know how it worked back in 2003. I assume you call and have the funds added to your account. So we know from the Easy Pass transactions that Jonathan passed through the Fort McHenry Tunnel in Baltimore at 11.49 p.m. He continues north on I-95, passing across the Tidings Memorial Bridge that separates Harford and Cecil County at 12.28 a.m. Jonathan's car passes across the Delaware Line at 12.46 a.m. At 12.57 a.m., the car gets off on 95 and goes into a rest area. He goes to the JFK Travel Plaza, where he withdraws $200 in cash from an ATM. There is footage of a person at this ATM, but the footage is so poor quality that you can't tell if it's Jonathan or someone else entirely. The video is like distorted and incredibly hard to figure out who's at this ATM. He gets back on 95 and at 2.37 a.m., Jonathan's car gets on the New Jersey Turnpike at exit 6A. It's around this time that he stops using his Easy Pass and switches to paper toll tickets. Ten minutes later, it enters the Pennsylvania Turnpike by the Delaware River Bridge. I know you all are wondering about security cameras capturing Jonathan in his car during all these transactions through the toll areas, but I cannot find anything where photos or videos were released or maybe the cameras weren't working. There just isn't any. At 3.20 a.m., 
Jonathan's debit card was used at a Sunogo gas station in King of Prussia. We'll go. We'll discuss more about this gas station stop in a bit. At 4:04 a.m., Jonathan exits the PA Turnpike at exit 286. At 5:30 a.m., two employees for the well drilling company find Jonathan's car stopped at the creek and call police. This location is Dry Tavern Road in Denver, Pennsylvania. This area is known for a lot of Amish people, and it's just a very small rural area, literally in the middle of nowhere. When the police arrive, they find blood on the inside and outside of the vehicle. A child's car seat is in the back seat. There's blood in the back seat of the car, indicating that it was possible Jonathan had been in the back seat during the trip or part of the trip, or maybe he was alone this whole time. Scattered bills are inside of the car. I don't know if this was the $200 he withdrew from the ATM or what the amount in his car even was, but I do know there were various dollars. If I can remember correctly, I think back back then when you went to the ATM, you could only get out $20 bills. Nowadays, lots of ATMs have the options to get $5 and $10 bills. Back in 2003, I was a broke 22-year-old, and I remember going to an ATM and not being able to withdraw money because I only had $18 in the bank. When the police find Jonathan's body, it was only a couple minutes after they arrived. He was laying face down in the creek in front of the car. They noticed he was well-dressed and stood out in this area. He's wearing a full business suit. He had stab wounds, 36 in total. So here's the thing. Even today in 2024, Jonathan's autopsy records are sealed. They have not been released to the public. So we don't have a lot to go on. However, the coroner in this case spoke to the media and gave us a glimpse into Jonathan's injuries. So this 36 stab wounds he had were mostly superficial. Many were just prick marks. They were done with a very small knife, like a pocket knife or a pen knife. One of the stab wounds was to his corroded artery, which could cause him to bleed out. There were a few that were deep enough to do some internal damage, but not lethal. The cuts were to his hands and his neck and chest area. So again, he was stabbed a total of 36 times with a small knife that isn't going to do lethal damage without a lot of work. However, one of the cuts hits a main artery in his neck, which can be deadly. You can die pretty fast from it. There was also some information that got out that that he had a stab wound to his testicles, but since the autopsy report is sealed, we can't say for sure that this is what really happened. But his cause of death was not from these stab wounds. Jonathan was alive when he fell or was placed face first into the shallow creek. I'm talking this creek is only inches deep. His cause of death was drowning. So before he managed to bleed out from the cut to his neck, he drowned. There was water found in his lungs, meaning he hit the water and started breathing it in. Meanwhile, back in Baltimore, Dr. Angela wakes up and sees her husband never came home and reports him missing. The court hearing begins at 9.30 a.m. and the prosecution table has an empty chair. The defense lawyers say he never sent us a fax last night with the plea agreement he was finishing up. The judge is tapping his fingers, thinking he's probably just late again like he was yesterday. The judge calls the courtroom to order and asks, where is Mr. Luna? The defendants, Dion and Walter, and their counsel are sitting on the opposite side of the courtroom. Everyone is kind of waiting around a few minutes for Jonathan to show up. 
Jonathan's former supervisor is going to have to stand in for him. He tells the judge he is sorry to have to be the one to be here. The judge asks him if anyone has heard from Mr. Luna. He says, Yesterday, I became involved in some discussions with Mr. Tuminelli relative to his client, and so I have obtained at least a limited degree of what the issues are. I do believe that we have something worked out with Mr. Tuminelli. Mr. Luna was finalizing the agreement. I spoke with Mr. Luna last night. I don't know where he is at the moment. We are trying to locate him and trying to locate the final agreement. Back in Pennsylvania, it doesn't take long to discover that Jonathan Luna was the body found. He had his ID, plus the car's registration was in his name. His court ID was on him as well with his name and photo. Word spreads that Jonathan Luna was murdered 100 miles away, and all hell is going to break loose. This is a federal prosecutor who worked on high-profile cases. The level of investigation into Jonathan's death was compared to the D.C. sniper investigation, which took, which took place the year before. Jonathan's boss, who was an attorney for Maryland, held a press conference on the courthouse steps. He says, Let there be no doubt that everyone in law enforcement, local police, state police, United States Marshals, ATF, and the FBI, we will find out who did this. We are dedicated to bringing the persons responsible for this tragedy to justice. That's a commitment from me. That's a commitment from every law enforcement officer in the state of Maryland. The residents of this tiny little rural town are wondering how this high-profile government lawyer ended up in their town deceased. Murders are almost unheard of here. Their quiet town is now filled with police officers, FBI agents, news stations, journalists. The day after Jonathan was found, a large snowstorm came through the area and dumped 10 inches of snow. For days, the area was canvassed by 150 police cadets, as well as multiple other agencies looking for the murder weapon, which is either going to be a pocket knife or a pen knife, but no one can locate it. Two investigations are going on, and both lean towards the conclusion that Jonathan was murdered. This is due to the stab wounds, plus that last toll ticket stop at 4.04 a.m. that was given to the teller was located and found to have blood on it. And surprise, the blood was a match to Jonathan. So we know Jonathan is injured at this time, possibly driving or someone else was driving. We know that Jonathan died sometime between when he presented that toll ticket at 4.04 a.m. and when the two workers found him between 5 o'clock and 5.30 a.m. So he hadn't been in that creek very long. The two workers, if they had shown up an hour earlier, they would have seen everything and this case would be closed. Jonathan's funeral takes place and more than 1,000 people show up to pay their respects. Being a prosecutor, there's a long list of enemies Jonathan has. According to his wife, in his personal life, Jonathan was well-loved by everyone. He didn't have anyone that would want him him dead, again, in his personal life. But he's he's had lots of violent criminals put away. Could it have been someone he had locked up and they were coming back with a vengeance? They look at his current case, which is the most obvious, but number one, these two defendants were behind bars. Yes, there's a possibility they could have orchestrated a hitman behind bars, but that brings me to point number two. Jonathan was working with them. He had a great deal laid out in front of them. He was willing to drop the most serious charges. So this ending was going in their favor. So they don't really have a reason to want him dead. Their lawyers both said their clients had nothing to do with Mr. Luna's death. 
They look into his other cases and come to the conclusion that none of those defendants were involved as well. Meanwhile, the FBI's investigation is ongoing, and they're leaning towards the conclusion that this was nothing more than a very complex suicide. They believe Jonathan stabbed himself 36 times and then fell in the creek and drowned. This contradicts the local police investigation and two coroners who have both said this is a homicide. Again, autopsy results are sealed. I'll get into some of the findings. Let it be known that this case is still open today in 2024. So if the FBI is convinced that this is a suicide, why not close the case? Once police believed that this was not committed by someone that Jonathan had sent to prison, they begin looking into his personal life and find that for the most part, this guy is squeaky clean. As his wife said, Jonathan had no personal enemies, an upstanding citizen. There were a couple things that stood out, though, and I hate this part because now Jonathan's character is going to go on trial. Every little thing he's ever done wrong will come out, and it may not have anything to do with his death, or it might. We learned that several years before, this is back in 1996, the internet wasn't what it is today, but there was a dating profile on a website for a man named Jonathan Luna. It said he was a 31-year-old married black man looking for a side fling. We don't know if this was the Jonathan Luna in this case, but everything seems to match. However, Jonathan wasn't known to have any marital issues. As well, he's an incredibly smart individual, so I find it hard to believe that he would use his real name. Is there a possibility that Jonathan was meeting someone late at night? Was he having an affair? I'd like to think that he wasn't. He doesn't really fit the profile of someone who would do that. But I've never met the guy, and I only know what I've read about him. Investigators do go to the hotels in the surrounding area and showed a picture of Jonathan, and no one said that they had ever seen him before. As a tie-in to the last part, according to the Washington Post, on the Pennsylvania Turnpike in between Philadelphia and Denver, Pennsylvania, where Jonathan's body and car were found, a service station attendant who works the midnight shift at the Sunoco at the Peter J. Cameo rest stop said that she saw Jonathan come there at least once a month for the last six months late at night. He gets gas using his credit card and then he pays for his coffee using cash. She said he is always friendly and she remembers him because he always was dressed very nice, usually in a business suit. She said he's spoken to her a few times. So why was Jonathan making these monthly trips to Pennsylvania? As well, the route that he took from the city of Baltimore to the Reading Lancaster area where he was found is the strangest route. It's not direct. If he wanted to go direct, he should have just gotten on 83 in Baltimore and headed that way. Instead, he's taking this long route and there's hours missing that we don't know what he was doing during that time. Now, one person says there's an explanation for why Jonathan was making these trips to Pennsylvania. Jonathan's father said that Jonathan told him he has official business he was doing in Pennsylvania. Jonathan can't disclose a lot about his job, but he had mentioned to his dad at some point that he had these work trips that he had to make to Pennsylvania. However, officials say there were none. So remember back when I told you that Jonathan stopped at the Sunoco for gas in King of Prussia? This was the last stop 
before his body was found. He had one other one at 4 or 4 a.m., but this was just the toll ticket exchange. So there are surveillance cameras at this gas station, but of course, they were not working at the time. But here's the weird thing. According to Lancaster Online, when Jonathan paid for his gas on his credit card, he didn't just pay for one tank of gas. He paid for two, meaning there's a second car. Is it possible he was being followed? Did he run into someone at 2 a.m. in the morning and maybe the person gave him some sob story about how they needed gas and Jonathan paid for it and then the person turned on him? I want to go back to the stab wounds for a moment. I mentioned earlier that a lot of these were just prick marks. If it was a suicide, I would call them hesitation wounds. With the suicide theory, I'm bothered because stabbing yourself in the neck and the chest is an awfully strange way to do it. Most times, someone who commits suicide with a knife will slice their wrists. Jonathan did have stab marks into his hands, but because the autopsy is sealed, we don't know if they were on the tops of his hands or the palms, or if they were on the palms, they would likely be defensive wounds and someone was stabbing him. If it was someone doing it to Jonathan, I would assume the prick marks are like an interrogation tactic or trying to get him to talk. Maybe Jonathan was being tortured, especially with an unverified report that his testicles were hit. According to Lancaster Online, Jonathan has 16 credit cards, some of these his wife does not know about. Now, I know that sounds sketchy when I say it out loud, but I'm not convinced that it's a big deal. Jonathan is found to have $25,000 in credit card debt. Again, this isn't raising any red flags to me. He's a very busy married father of two. The average person in America has $6,000 in credit card debt. But in my opinion, $25,000 in credit card debt is a lot, but not enough to commit suicide over. Two months after Jonathan's death, the penknife was found. It was near where Jonathan's body was, an area that had been searched countless times. It just showed up one day. It's possible that it was missed, although very unlikely, especially with the FBI looking around, or someone could have returned it to the scene. A $100,000 reward was put up by investigators to anyone who can shed some light on Jonathan's movements that night. On the one-year anniversary of Jonathan's death, the FBI announced that they believe Jonathan was completely alone that night. They found no evidence that anyone was with him. In 2005, some new information comes out about something Jonathan had going on before his death. According to the Daily Record, Back in 2001, a man named Nico Brown was indicted after committing a series of bank robberies. In 2002, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. So the exhibits that are brought out in front of the court included stacks of cash, three shrink-wrapped stacks of $20 bills. The stacks totaled $36,000. After everyone in the courtroom views the cash sitting on a table in front of the judge, it's one of the exhibits, it gets placed onto a cart and wheeled back into a government storage room. It was only in the courtroom for a few minutes. Well, this money goes missing while in transit from the courtroom to the storage room. Jonathan Luna and other lawyers in Nico Brown's case signed a paper that all evidence had been returned. Truthfully, he may not have known it went missing and just signed the document like he signs dozens of other documents all day long. 
Or is it possible that Jonathan was responsible for the money disappearing? Or is it possible someone else stole the money and Jonathan knew who it was? Five government employees, one of them being Jonathan, were ordered to take a polygraph test regarding this disappearing money. Four of them had taken a polygraph, but Jonathan postponed his. There was also custodians who had to take a polygraph. So Jonathan postponing the polygraph, this could be because he has something to hide, or it may be because he's a very busy guy and he truly needed to postpone the polygraph due to his workload. A fellow attorney said that she took a polygraph and that Jonathan had no reservations about taking the polygraph. He truly just didn't have the time. Right after he postpones it, though, he is found deceased. A couple things that stand out to me. Jonathan doesn't seem to fit the profile of someone who is going to risk his entire career over $36,000. He makes good money. His wife is a very successful doctor. He's not stupid enough to steal evidence from a case. To me, $36,000 ain't worth it. But Jonathan had recently applied for a $30,000 loan using an online application. But according to Lancaster Online, the application was canceled not long after the money went missing. Now I'm going to go on my rant. (laughs) I don't feel Jonathan stole this $36,000. I truly don't. Jonathan doesn't seem like a money-focused kind of person. He works so much that he doesn't have time to spend money. He and his wife were not struggling. They were not in jeopardy of losing their house or their cars. This was a guy that helped pay for his parents' house and took a year off from college to help his cancer-stricken father. I feel Jonathan knew who stole it and that it's possible that this person had access to the courthouse the night that Jonathan was working. Jonathan was abducted from his office while leaving, which explains his glasses and cell phone getting left behind. They went on a long ride and Jonathan was killed. However, this makes me feel like there would have had to have been a second car. If Jonathan's car was the only ride they had, They left it there at the creek and then began walking in the middle of the Amish country back to Baltimore. Remember, Jonathan possibly filled two tanks. But something else I thought of, and I looked it up, and I was surprised to see that someone else had already figured it out. The amount of money that was missing was $36,000. Jonathan was stabbed 36 times. My mind is going a million places with that. I could go super conspiracy here, but I'll save your time. According to the Washington Post, some speculated that Jonathan may have staged an abduction and kidnapping and that it went too far. He nicked an artery and it was too late. And the reason he would have staged the abduction and kidnapping was to get out of this whole polygraph thing. There is a private investigator in this case named William Buckley, who is a former police detective. According to Fox 43 in 2020, he said, He had a backbone and he wouldn't back off and it cost him his life. He wound up in Lancaster County and he wound up dead. I know who sanctioned it, who did it, and who was behind the hit. If I know it, why don't state police know it? William Buckley did file a right to know request for coroner records, but his request was denied. He went on to say, you have a cover up, which I think this is, both by the FBI and the Pennsylvania State Police. Whoever went into that courthouse and took him out was either known by security or had a badge. We don't know what he would be doing in that area on his own. 
The body was dropped off there for a specific reason and his car. There was another car involved and it had to be the getaway car, end quote. I'm just so overwhelmed because I don't know what happened to him. There's so many holes in this story and gaps and I don't know how to clean it up. Why aren't these cameras working or if they are working, why won't they release the photos? I don't think he's stabbing himself in his in his hands while he's driving down the road. Why did he withdraw $200 from the ATM if he planned on committing suicide hours later? The FBI says there's no evidence that anyone was with him that night. To them, he committed suicide. Then why not close the case? The simplest explanation for Jonathan's death is usually the right one, but there really isn't a simple explanation. I can't explain that what happened that night. This case is still open, so it's possible maybe someday it will finally be solved. Rest in peace to Jonathan Luna, a promising young man who didn't deserve to die alone in a cold creek. That's it for this week, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care, and much love to you all.